What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. On This Week in FCPA, Tom and Jay look at the following stories. What does GameStop portend for compliance? Tom takes a deep dive on the FCPA Compliance and Ethics blog, and he and Matt Kelly also look at it on Compliance into the Weeds. Enterprise risks going forward, Matt Kelly looks down the road in radical compliance. Solar winds turning into a Pandora's box, Jacqueline Jager explores in Compliance Week. Risk culture in the digital age, Jim Deloach explores in CCI. What does the CFTC settlement with veto portend for enforcement? Gibson Dunn lawyers and the NYU's Compliance and Enforcement blog. What are the top regulatory trends to watch for under the Biden administration? Rachel Woolley tells us more in CCI. Lawyers freed can now sit in one jurisdiction and practice another. Nellie Bernard and the Holland and Knight client alert. And finally, can compliance help with a workplace moral crisis? Richard Bistrong pines in the FCPA blog. We're in the month of February and Tom profiles Natalia Shehadad, the CCO at ABB. And we highlight some additional podcasts and the upcoming first annual Baker Tilly Fraud Compliance Summit later this month. All this and more on This Week in FCPA. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Jay Rose and Mr. Monitors himself for This Week in FCPA, episode 238, for the week ending February 5, 2021, the GameStop edition. With two black swan events in January alone, Tom and Jay are wondering what else in 2021 will bring. Jay is bemoaning Tampa Bay in the Super Bowl, but he's holding his head high for the golden one. And we're also back to look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, which caught our eye. Jay, what say you? In the spirit of uh, Mr. Brady, who always likes to say hi to his family, I'm reaching out to my mom, Sidel Rosen, in Massachusetts, wishing her a happy 80th birthday, 8-0. Have a great day, and we will celebrate tonight. Well, uh, can I give a belated shout-out to my mother? She had her birthday this week as well. Of course. Go for it. Happy 88, Mom. Hang in there. All right. We, we took care of our moms. We're good mama, bo- mama's boys, so let's uh, take care of uh, ethics and compliance for the week. What's first up, Tom? Uh, our lead edition uh, name, moniker this week is GameStop, and we're going to start with this because um, it is one of the most fascinating stories. I think it is really portends a huge change in a lot of different industries. Jay, obviously, uh, investing, uh, stock market purchasing, uh, all the way up to uh, trillion-dollar hedge funds. Everybody in between, Securities and Exchange Commission, lots of alphabet agencies we've never heard of, one called the DTCC. And I think it really also portends lots of changes in uh, business period. 
Uh, I think uh, unless you've just arrived from the shuttle from Mars, you probably know about GameStop. Uh, the uh, salient numbers I'd like to start off with, Jay, are Monday, $358.35, Friday, $57.22. I will let you figure out what those two are, and it's a hint. It's the stock prices at the end of the day. So uh, a little volatility there. I know you uh, you come from an equally volatile uh, background of the shoe business, so you're probably used to that in in some fashion, but it, it's been just a wild ride uh, watching this uh, from afar. And you had uh, really Joe Q Public, Main Street traders, uh, who took down uh, nearly uh, some massive hedge funds who'd taken short positions in GameStop. This, uh, this is what caught everybody's eye, but that was last week, and this is this week in FCPA. So we're going to focus on this week, not last week where they executed with perfection the squeeze on uh, numerous uh, hedge funds. Uh, a couple uh, took took a hit of um, over half their uh, value uh, and literally lost billions. But what happened this week, Jay, was uh, people began to reflect on how did this happen? What happened? What's the regulatory response and what does it mean for the compliance practitioner? That's uh, I've been writing about that this week. And I sat down uh, yesterday to write my final blog post of the week and um, really thought about this. I'd been quoting a guy all week named Jed Gardner. And Jed had one of the most prescient com- com- uh, comments about the coronavirus health crisis, which was we're no longer in disaster recovery, business continuity. We're now in business as usual. And in the first month of this year, we had two literal black swan events, one an armed insurrection at the U.S. Capitol uh, led directly from by uh, the then President Donald Trump. And now we've had uh, a group of retail investors, uh, not just Joe Q. Public, but Joe Q. Q Teenager uh, trading out of his basement, literally brought down a couple of hedge fund giants. So uh, that portends a big change. But now the regulators are going to step in. And what are the regulators going to do? What does this mean for the trading platform, Robinhood, who suspended trading in the midst of this frenzy? That stopped the frenzy and started the downturn of GameStop. Do they have any responsibility for that? They said they had to do so because of a regulatory requirement uh, from an alphabet agency I'd never heard of called the DTCC. And um, I did a little research into that. And uh, it's not clear to me whether it was a regulatory agency or really a voluntary association around trading, which provides the cash for the time difference between a put and your uh, between your purchase and your settlement can be up to 48 hours. And they made basically a massive cash call for collateral on Robinhood. Uh, they didn't say how or why or how they uh, what uh, what was their basis for the decision. Nevertheless, they did, and uh, Robinhood had to suspend, suspend, or rather, it did not have to, but it did suspend trading for one day. This week, we learned a, a few more tidbits. The most interesting was on the regulatory side that the prime mover and shaker in the social media world of the Reddit uh, subgroup, Wall Street, um, was a fellow named whose handle was Roaring Kitty, and he was very public 
about his position. He's had this position for, uh, I think, at least since September. He's on YouTube. He's on Reddit. He's on other social media. He is as visible as you can be. Well, Jay, it turns out he's a licensed securities broker, and he has a day job, or he did. And that day job was with, guess who? Another licensed securities company, Mass Mutual. Well, uh, there's one. It's certainly one thing if uh, uh, JQ Public Rosen trades the stock market, even on Robinhood and Tom Fox. But it's a whole different kettle of worms if you're a licensed uh, or registered broker and you work for a registered brokerage house. Uh, there are additional obligations. So, what if Mass Mutual had positions in GameStop? Um, why didn't Mass Mutual know that one of their employees was out there literally for nine months? pound in the drum about uh, buying GameStop. Uh, lots of questions. And the, what I would pose to the compliance practitioner is, are you ready for this? I called up Jed Garner, uh, who I've been using his quote all week, and, and I interviewed him. I said, Jed, what do you think about all this? And, and he said, his, his first point was, are you quick enough to control um, the conduct or the output? or anything else untowards that happens. And in this day and age, I mean, Matt Kelly talks about social media not being the message, but amplifying the message. So it was a fascinating ride this week. It was a really lot of fun writing about it and, and researching in an area that um, I didn't know as much about as I know of as compliance. But I think every company needs to wake up. And you need to know what your employees are saying on social media. This is not big brother surveillance, but if you're a registered uh, a securities company uh, and your employees who are registered brokers are out there touting, even if it's, uh, and there's absolutely nothing wrong, I don't think about what he was doing, which is saying this is an undervalued stock that the shorts are after. I think it's a good value. Let's go for it. Um, I think that's what, you know, Kramer does. I think that's what Warren Buffett does using very, very different language, which is I've invested in this company. So, um, uh, really a lot to think about, and we may have had a shift in the way securities are bought and traded in this co country uh, like we have not really seen in uh, probably 100 years. Really wild stuff, Tom. Um, second article we got, and we're checking in with the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly, on his Radical Compliance blog. And uh, Matt wants to take a look at uh, enterprise risks, the pandemic, and beyond. The top worries this year among corporate leaders are the pandemic and its economic consequences. So says Protivity's annual report on the top enterprise risks. The top risk for 2021, according to the survey of nearly 1,100 corporate board directors and senior execs, is that pandemic-related policies and regulations might curtail growth. In the second place are the fears that a poor economic conditions might constrain growth, and third are fears that the pandemic-related market conditions may reduce customer demand. Only after those three pandemic-related risks did the survey respondents get to the usual concerns like cybersecurity, regulatory change, struggles to adopt digital technologies, and the ability of older organizations to compete against digital rivals. Comparing this year's list to last year's, the top risk rated one year ago was the impact of regulatory change on the operational resilience, products, and services, which dropped to seventh place this year. 
The top 10 list for 2021 is dominated by operational risk concerns as current conditions have turned organization operations upside down. Executives are concerned about the safety and relevance of their personnel and the sustainability, security, and reliability of their systems and operating infrastructures. What does this mean in a practical sense for the chief audit executives? Protivity raises two interesting reports points in their report. First off, the pandemic's Swiss arrival and disruption means businesses must be more risk-aware, better to detect emerging risks early and then respond to them in a quick manner. That also means that businesses must move even more briskly into digital transformation because that's what allows for better risk detection and agile response. Now, here's an interesting look ahead to anticipated risks in 2030. This year, Protivity also did a thought experiment asking those same 1,100 corporate titans what they expected the top enterprise risks to be in 2030. First, this means that the survey respondents don't see the pandemic as a long-term problem that will dog the world for years. And second, it means that the business executives around the world continue to worry about the same basic challenges, their organization's ability to respond to megatrends affecting business across the world. The megatrends themselves are generally well-known and slow-moving. Climate change, automotive uh, technology, aging populations, water scarcity, 5G networks, and the like. The more relevant question for audit and risk professionals working at specific organizations is how good you are at detecting specific risks that may arise from these megatrends. For example, we all know that global warming is leading more to more instances of extreme weather events. So how good are you at assessing your organization's vulnerability to extreme weather? Likewise, we all know that advances in AI and robotics will decimate manufacturing's workforce while demand for highly skilled tech employees will continue. Finally, how will you identify specific advances in those, those fields that might render your products or business models obsolete? And so on and so forth. Those are the issues that your boards and CEOs over the long term will worry about. The pandemic might hog the enterprise risk spotlight now, but as Productivity Survey reminds us, some things are internal. Back to you, Tom. Next up, we have an article by uh, our colleague Jacqueline Jager over at Compliance Week on solar winds. And she really walks us through what you need to do as a compliance professional uh, around uh, solar wind and the breach. But then she focused on um, the supply chain risk. And this is where the meat of the article I thought was really helpful because she laid out some steps you should take. It starts with an internal evaluation by taking an inventory of everything on your network, not just physical assets, but software assets. Knowing your environment helps limit your exposure. Next, conduct a third-party evaluation. Do you know what third parties you have? Not all third parties are equal from a risk management perspective, so you need to assess what's the most confidential, what's the most critical. Are there any crown jewels within your third-party supply chain? Next, Conduct an inherent risk assessment, which means asking some very general questions of third parties where you're trying to garner as much information as you can to find out what those risks may be to your company. Next, perform due diligence from a network security and data privacy standpoint. You should ensure that your company is not only compliant with relevant data privacy laws, but you have an information security policy in place. 
Conduct some cyber attack fire drills. Are you doing proper incident response testing? Are you actively running drills? If a massive cyber attack like this happens, does everyone know their roles? Uh, the lawyer in me appreciates the next one, of course, which is put it in a contract from a legal and compliance standpoint. Managing your third-party supply chain can be mitigated in part by strong contractual language. So go down the hall and talk to your uh, lawyer or your compliance professional or, or uh, seek out some counsel from one who can help you put the right language in your contract uh, to uh, protect your company going forward. So uh, great impression article, uh, certainly timely from uh, Jacqueline. Jay, back Thanks, to you. Tom. Thanks, Tom. Uh, next up, we have the first of two from CCI, Corporate Compliance Insights, checking in with a good friend of the podcast, Jim Deloach, who says, is your risk culture aligned with realities of the digital age? The ground rules for risk and reward are well known. These rules hold that one must take risk to grow, and the more risk one takes, the higher the potential return. But in the digital age, these time-honored tenets must reflect more prominently the risks of inaction and organizational resistance to change. Given the pace of change in the digital economy, the realities are such that it's not just a matter of taking risks to grow or generate greater returns, it's also a matter of your basic survival. Bottom line, organizations must undertake more risk than they may be accustomed to taking if they're going to survive. And this is no time to be comfortable with the status quo. Here are some key considerations Jim recommends us thinking about. Taking risk means more than introducing new products and entering new markets. It entails becoming more innovative and reimagining processes, disrupting business models, and even reinventing an organization. Over three decades, thinking around best-of-class risk management has evolved from a fragmented, siloed model uh, to an enterprise-wide approach focused on the most critical enterprise risks and integrated with strategy-setting performance management. In the digital age, risk management must be strategic. Traditional risk management applies to an analytical framework to assess risks and opportunities with different characteristics and time horizons. This approach ignores the reality of uncertainties organizations face in the digital age and is often influenced by past experience and subjective assessments. Many of the risks and opportunities unique to the digital age are compensated, meaning they're two-sided and present enormous potential for upside that compensates for the downside exposure. This is why traditional risk management often does not influence strategy as it often focuses on mitigating and avoiding uncompensated risks. That said, when managing such exposure risks, care must be taken not to ignore interrelationships with other risks that offer upside potential because they're complicated risks, are compensated risks. In the digital age, risk management must help leaders make the best bets from a risk reward standpoint that have the greatest potential for creating enterprise-wide value. This means the creation protection of enterprise value in the digital age depends on the organization's ability to pursue compensated risks and opportunities successfully and to either avoid or transfer uncompensated risks or reduce them to an acceptable level. A risk-informed approach fit for the digital age is one that is strategic in considering the impact of risk strategy and performance balanced and evaluating both opportunity and risk, integrated with selling strategies, with, excuse me, with setting strategies 
planning and business and execution. And finally, customize, reflecting organizational business needs, expectations, and cultural attributes. And the digital economy, risk management must contribute to reshaping strategy in advance of disruptive change. Market-changing organizations are built differently, but in the digital age, becoming a leader entails revisiting risk mitigation strategies with an eye towards accepting more risks and exploiting the upside potential of market opportunities. Back to you, Tom. So, Jay, next up, we have the CFTC settlement with Vital. This is uh, a case that we've talked about in an earlier episode, but this week, some lawyers from um, Davis Polk, I believe, uh, I'm sorry, Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher, uh, posted in the New York University's Compliance and Enforcement blog a lengthy article on it, and I thought it was uh, very good. I won't recite the facts because I think those are known to uh, to most of our listeners, but they talked about the impact of the settlement. And the key uh, uh, difference in this settlement was it was the first time the CFTC had gone after companies for uh, corruption violations of the FCPA. There were also uh, anti-competitive and trading violations, but I'm going to leave those to the side. So what were the implications as noted by the Gibson Dunn lawyers? Number one, they expect the CFTC to pursue more cases involving foreign corruption. And as I mentioned, this is the first case brought, but uh, unlikely to be the last. So it certainly could be a prime for area for whistleblower exploitation or other uh, types of uh, reporting back to the Department of Justice or Securities and Exchange Commission. Two, the CFTC will continue to closely coordinate with other regulators in pursuit of foreign corruption. Obviously, Department of Justice leads the charge on uh, foreign corruption, at least from the criminal side. The SEC is is, uh, very closely involved as well. But now we're seeing other agencies. We saw the OCC. We saw the Fed. We saw the New York State Department of Financial Services. We've seen uh, the Department of uh, Treasury uh, involved. Uh, Now the CFTC. So we're going to see a lot more of the agencies, I think, involved. Next, uh, uh, They expect that foreign corruption allegations involving commodities-related business will continue to be investigated and pursued by multiple agencies, both in the U.S. and uh, internationally, but that each agency will approach it from their unique uh, regulatory perspective. So, uh, frankly, you're going to get whipsawed by a lot of different agencies. You're going to have to respond and negotiate with a lot of different agencies. The one-pie-fines concept may be in place, but it doesn't mean you're not in for some difficult uh, negotiations going forward. And then finally, the last one, and near and dear to my heart, and I'll explain why in a minute, is that energy firms in particular should be aware of this development. Uh, I think it was about eight years ago when I was representing an energy company, um, I asked the compliance person I was reporting to, um, have you looked at your counterparties from your oil traders? And this company was not one of the big boys, so it was a kind of a second-tier firm, and they um, they had not done so. And I said, well, you know, every one of those trades is with a national oil company. They're either buying, they're selling, you're shipping to them, they're somehow involved um, because it's usually their oil. It's not American oil. And at any touch point is a foreign government touch point, and any touch point is a potential FCPA violation. And I wondered why no one was looking at that, Uh, but no one was. And I beat a silent drum for a couple of years, but I couldn't make anyone understand. I thought this was a huge potential uh, risk exposure in the energy space. 
And it turns out it is. And now the CFTC is looking into, in fact, I can't remember the name of the woman. We did a podcast about 2015, and I was telling her that, and she goes, you know, please send those people to me. That's exactly what I do. And she was ahead of the curve on uh, doing the white-collar defense. So in particularly in the energy space, uh, this trading uh, could be uh, ripe for FCPA investigations uh, as well. Uh, what do you have next, Jay? Uh, as promised, we have a second story coming to us from CCI, Corporate Compliance Insights. This comes to us from Fernegro's uh, Rachel Woolley, and she's going to take a look at the top regulatory trends to watch in 2021. First up, she says we should look at an increase in reforms across the globe. Many countries and regions across the globe are in the process of introducing AML reform in an effort to enhance the industry's response to financial crime. Over the next few years, we can expect to see sweeping changes in the Americas, Europe, and the APAC region. Filed as an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act, the Anti-Money Laundering Act, AMLA, of 2020, seeks to address issues relating to the use of anonymous companies by improving corporate transparency. In the EU, six AML directives have been adopted over the last 30 years with further reform proposals under consideration. The EU also conducted a public consultation on the digital finance strategy, as well as industry surveys on regtech environment. Second, the impact of Brexit. Much like Norway, Sweden, Iceland, and Liechtenstein, the UK is no longer subject to EU directives or regulations post-Brexit. However, it is likely that the US will continue, excuse me, the UK will continue to align with the EU's approach in addressing financial crimes. The UK money laundering regulations are further updated with minor amendments at the end of the transition period by way of money laundering and terrorist financing amendments in 2020. Number three, ubiquitous endorsement of technology. Although financial regulators have acknowledged the use of technology for some time, the pandemic has resulted in an increased focus on digital operational resilience and continuity in the provision of financial services. Many prominent financial regulators, including the Financial Conduct Authority, FCA, in the United Kingdom, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, the Monetary Authority of Singapore, and Australian Transaction Reports and Analysis Center have all endorsed the use of technology solutions to ensure business continuity throughout the pandemic. Finally, a greater focus on effectiveness than compliance. Since 2008, over 46 billion in penalties have been issued to global financial institutions for non-compliance with AML sanctions and other financial compliance obligations with 10.6 billion issued in 2020 alone. However, the true cost of non-compliance is more than the financial penalty paid by such institutions. With global industry bodies continuing to highlight concerns with other areas such as human trafficking and drug and the drug industry. The industry as a whole is reflecting on the response needed to enhance our approach to financial crime prevention, including enhancing the legislative, regulatory, and supervisory activities. The industry also needs to adopt an outcome-based approach rather than simply following a prescriptive rules-based approach. As the financial industry moves through 2021, financial institutions will need to continue to bolster their response to financial crime by embracing regulations 
while at the same time taking a closer look at the effectiveness of their compliance efforts. If 2020 has taught us anything, it's that regulatory complexity will only continue to increase. So having the most cutting edge technology will be a critical tool to help navigate the compliance landscape. Tom? Jay, as you know, uh, I think it's uh, two years ago now, Dick Casson retired uh, from being the editor-in-chief of the FCPA blog. And although he said goodbye, it was not farewell. And he's still kind of a roving correspondent. And he writes about a lot of things that interest him in ways, uh, topics and ways that are very thought-provoking. And we have one today that is uh, really thought-provoking, which asks, is your compliance team too big? And uh, Dick uses... um, the compliance team from Citibank, as an example, which has 30,000 risk and compliance-related professionals. I recognize that's probably a lot larger than uh, many of the listeners to this, but nevertheless, Dick says that when your team um, increases, that can have several negative uh, side effects Uh, one of which is that a bloated and undermanaged compliance team is likely to have less output per team member and scaled-down version. He gives a couple of of reasons for this. One is called social loafing. And uh, social loafing is where uh, a person's motivation dwindles because team members naturally assume the team's chances of completing a task are greater than the individual's. Another is... uh, the free rider effect where team members think other members who are not giving a full effort uh, are, are part of the, the problem. And to avoid being victimized by the slackers, other team members will do less, dragging down the entire team's uh, productivity. The, um, this is, can be a, a devastating effect, effect. I know, Jay, you have worked in corporate America, and I have as well, and in some of the biggest corporations I've worked at, actually had the lowest productivity. And uh, part of that was that the productivity was s- sort of informally set, whether that be uh, go home at five, whether that be you didn't bust your hump for anything unless, you know, senior management called, whether that there was just a cadence of the way things got done. And in my first corporate uh, position, um, it, it was very clear to me that uh, they were working at a pace much slower than me. And so they didn't want to pick the pace up to where I was. They basically said, you know, you need to slow down. You're embarrassing us. And um, so when you have that kind of mentality, uh, government work, as we'd say in the South, um, you don't get high productivity. So a very thought-provoking article. Uh, I'm not sure that you and I can compare a 30,000-man and woman compliance department, but um, uh, there may be uh, other uh, areas that Dick has explored that uh, we should uh, explore or at least talk to some uh, companies about going forward. It's a big number, 30,000, so kind of hard to get your your mind around that. Uh, we got a second one coming to us from the FCPA blog. This is from Richard B. Strong, and it's called, Let's Turn Our Workplace Morale Crisis into a Breakthrough for Compliance. 
New research from the Society for Human Resource Engagement reported unsurprisingly that 41% of U.S. employees feel burnt out from work, while another 23% report feeling depressed. To the list of crises we're facing as 2021 kicks off, let's add workplace morale. And as a recent post on the FCPA blog suggested, the only real antidote to a workplace morale crisis is an injection of energy and resilience. Yet how do you do that in today's virtual and hybrid world remains a challenge. There are no simple solutions. One thought might be to establish a continuous feedback loop, but with personnel already stressed and strained in virtual sessions, is it even possible to establish a continual feedback loop by keeping people out of the digital dragon's teeth? This theory was communicated by Nick Morgan. Mr. Morgan, a prolific writer and author of Can You Hear Me? How to Connect with People in the Virtual World, has warned that in our virtual environment, we can't keep it up or decide the relative importance of all the stuff coming at us. To overcome an individual limitation, Mr. Morgan recommends inviting regular group input. If we want to make sure compliance initiatives are aligned with real-time risks, then we need a continual feedback loop from those who are in the field. A year ago, no one was writing about corruption risk association associated with being declared an essential business. Yet now that's a persistent problem in many parts of the world, which can be best addressed if we know the many ways it presents itself. The positive news is that the flow of information is no longer dependent on who might be in proximity to the HQ or to a sales office. Our virtual environment flattens out access to information and critical skills, meaning feedback isn't limited to a knock on the door. The new environment has created opportunities for global feedback that were unimaginable only a decade ago. This feedback flows from what's been called a mini pulse. It beats through an organization and indicates with little delay whether an organization's vital signs are healthy or impaired. Richard suggests that you take a mini pulse wherever possible. For example, during your next training session, how about taking a compliance coffee with your attendees Ask them for input, solicit ideas, and advice. Are you doubling down on scheduled training that isn't mission critical now, like travel and entertainment, while employees may need additional support and how to respond to virtual requests from public officials and channel partners? We can't always monitor the body language or emotional responses during virtual training, but we can, as Mr. Morgan recommends, go around the list of attendees for a virtual stretch to take everyone's temperature. That may mean less substantive training during each session, but if the goal is to promote engagement, enthusiasm, and resilience, and establish pathways for future real-time feedback, isn't that compliance coffee worth the trade-off? Our ability to create continuous feedback loops will help us overcome workplace morale crises and meet today's compliance challenges limited only by our imagination, not technology. Tom, back to you. Okay, it's a, um, a new month, and so we have a new guest on this month's The Compliance Life. I have, for the month of February, Natalia Shaheda. Natalia is the Chief Compliance Officer at ABB. Uh, Natalia, uh, I knew Natalia through her work at several companies here in Houston. She has a, a fascinating journey. In Episode 1, we talk about why she chose compliance and uh, she is from a um, 
a family that lived all over the world when she was a child, multicultural, multilingual in the household. Uh, she still has a multilingual, multicultural household now. She now lives in Switzerland. Her educational uh, background was fascinating. So uh, check out the first episode, part one of a four-part series on the Compliance Life with Natalia Shahada. Next up, I'm extraordinarily excited about new podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. So we have um, four new podcasts, uh, actually five, but I'm going to talk about four of them here. And those four are ComTech, a podcast on the intersection of compliance and technology. I'm co-hosting with uh, Valerie Charles from Stone Turn. It's going to be a great series on, on that issue and that topic. Next week, we'll have our first guest, Parth Chanda, and it's uh, Lextegrity, founder of Lextegrity. So check that out on Monday. Um, uh, in uh, my next podcast for premiering the week after is Big Brains in Compliance with Stephen Martin, also a partner at Stone Turn. And Stephen and I are going to meet with some of the smartest thinkers around in compliance to get some of the top-level thinking that you can incorporate into your compliance program. Uh, Jay, uh, I'm starting uh, another podcast, rather premiering next week, is uh, the Compliance Handbook. And the Compliance Handbook will be a 12-part series, and we'll be detailing uh, a really deep dive into the nuts and bolts of compliance, but really from a philosophical perspective. And what does it mean to for the board's role in compliance? What is innovation in compliance? What's the best practice compliance program? What's third-party risk management? What is the role of HR in compliance? What's the role of communication and training? It's going to be a really interesting uh, podcast series, and I know our listeners will enjoy it. And Jay, I'm going to ask you to talk about a new AMI podcast called Integrity Through Compliance, which will also be compliance podcast. Thanks, Tom. So our new podcast, uh, excuse our, our new podcast, Integrity Through Compliance will leverage AMI's expert observations and guidance in the fields of ethics, antitrust, healthcare, government contracting, uh, corporate governance, cybersecurity, construction, telecommunications, consumer protection, and more. In this first episode, AMI's founder, Vin Siani will visit with Jerry Coyne, and they will talk about the future of telehealth and home telehealth during a pandemic. Uh, we have a link to it in the show notes, and there's also a white paper that Jerry's penned that is uh, also accessible from the uh, show notes. Uh, next up, we've got a webinar, uh, Join K2 Integrity and the AIBACP for a webinar on December 17th uh, regarding the National Defense Authorization Act, AML compliance implications, and priorities for the banking industry. Information and registration can be uh, accessed through the show notes. And then on Thursday, February 25th, join the Ask an Expert FinQuery webinar on Dolphin K2 Integrity's Financial Crimes Compliance Experts will respond to your AML, CFT, sanctions, and other financial integrity questions. Uh, Tom, why don't you tell us uh, about um, the last two items on the list, please? So uh, our friends at Compliance Week are accepting nominations for the Excellent Excellence in Compliance Award. Uh, this is an award started last year by Compliance Week where they truly award excellence in the compliance realm. The um, 
la- uh, last year's uh, winner uh, was, um, and I've now just forgotten her name, Carrie Penman. I'm sorry. Uh, I can't think of another first year the top professional, but it's, it's compliance uh, initiatives, it's compliance ideas, it's compliance practitioners. Check, uh, check out Compliance Week. You can get behind the firewall to make a nomination. It really honors the best of the best in our profession, and it's certainly an award that uh, I think is well uh, thought of in our profession already, well-deserved by the people who are nominated and win it. And then um, our good friend uh, and everything compliance co- cohort and compadre, uh, Jonathan Marks, is leading a Baker Tilly first annual Fraud and Compliance Summit, February 23rd to February 25th. Virtual Summit, of course. Uh, Jay, I'm pretty sure you have some involvement in this and may even be part of your uh, recovery program, as I understand it, uh, from your screenwriting days. Uh, But Mary Shirley and I uh, did a presentation, and we will be uh, available. uh, It'll be a Zoom uh, event, so we'll be available live for questions. And it's really unique. It's uh, it's all thanks to kind of one of a kind. Uh, but uh, I'm really excited about it. It's got he's got some great presentations. And why don't you just maybe give us a little bit of a teaser of your role in this, Jay? Well, uh, Jonathan asked me to put together some thoughts on what I thought were the uh, top stories and trends from 2020 and. Luckily, I had the past 52 weeks to bone up on what happened in the previous year. So uh, if you tune in on the 23rd on the opening day, uh, you'll see my brief remarks. And, uh, you know, I think this is kind of like a field of dreams thing for Jonathan. If you build it, they will come. Uh, He's got a great um, blog that he publishes. And this is just another uh, instance of Jonathan being passionate about anti-fraud and building those control systems. So we really look forward to this. Um, If you would like to get in touch with Tom, who is the compliance evangelist and the voice of compliance, you can reach him at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And uh, myself, Mr. Monitor, Jay Rosen, can be reached at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. So, For this week in FCPA, episode 238, for the week ending February 5th, 2021, we thank you for joining us for the GameStop edition, but we also uh, know it's the mom's birthday edition, too. So moms out there, both Tom and I wish you happy birthdays. Everyone, please be safe and healthy, and we look forward to seeing you next week on FC, this week and FCPA. Thanks for tuning in. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. I'd like you to check out the new Affiliated Monitors podcast. We'll be up on the Compliance Podcast Network very soon. It's going to be uh, some great content from our good friends at Affiliated Monitors, including my This Week in FCPA co-host, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors himself. You can reach Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join us each Thursday at 4 p.m. Central on LinkedIn or Facebook, where we live stream This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to visiting with you again next week.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.